Hi, I'm Dr. Erin Parks. I'm a clinical psychologist and I co-founded Equip Health. I serve as their COO and we're helping to make sure that everyone has access to eating disorder treatment that works. To me, femtech is a new word that should not be a new word. I want everyone to know that females deserve to have their voice in the tech space, in the health space, uh, helping to make the world better for everyone. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated Femtech team is proud to partner with members of the Femtech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash femtech. Before I introduce our guest, I want to tell you about our upcoming conference in partnership with the Fem Technology Summit. The Fem Technology Summit is taking place on June 1st and 2nd, and it's a very special event because it's a hybrid event. That means virtual and in person. The speakers are all virtual, and Femtech Focus is hosting a North American watch party in Raleigh, North Carolina, part of RTP, Research Triangle Park. Check it out. Give it a Google. You'll learn a lot about where I currently live and all of the awesome things that are going on in this area. Now, let me break this down for you how this works. If you'd like to watch and listen to these rock star Femtech speakers that Femtechnology Summit organized, you can watch them technically from anywhere in the world for free. You can register for that at femtechnology.org. But if you'd like to watch these speakers with 200 plus other Femtech founders, investors, enthusiasts in person in Raleigh, North Carolina, Paired with additional panels, networking, dinners, activities, and a $100,000 investment challenge led by Coyote Ventures, then you need to go to femtechfocus.org and buy a watch party ticket. Tickets are only $45 or $20 if you're a student. I'm very big on being accessible to everyone. This ticket covers your attendance to watch the virtual summit together, the additional activities and networking, as well as breakfast and dinners. If you're traveling into Raleigh from out of town, we're helping organize affordable lodging in Airbnbs with other attendees. So once again, if you want to watch the speakers from anywhere in the world for free, register at femtechnology.org. If you'd like to join me and hundreds of other attendees in person to watch the speakers and have a femtastic adventure, then buy a ticket at femtechfocus.org and plan your trip for Raleigh, North Carolina, June 1st and 2nd. And of course, I want to be very good to our podcast listeners, so use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your ticket. That's promo code PODCAST at femtechfocus.org for your summit tickets, 20% off. See you there. Alrighty, Fem fans. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Aaron Parks, the co-founder and chief operating officer of Equip Health. 
Equip helps families recover from eating disorders at home. Equip's virtual evidence-based care is provided by a dedicated five-person team that empowers families to help their loved ones achieve lasting recovery. In the U.S. alone, five million people will develop an eating disorder, which has the second highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. In fact, there's been a 70% increase in eating disorders since the start of the pandemic, indiscriminate of gender, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. In this episode, we also highlight a unique finding. You know how I end every episode with saying women's health is everyone's health? Well, did you know that 40% of people struggling with anorexia are males? I did not realize that number was that high. When a disease is considered a female disease, it is wildly underserved, as we all know on the show. But what we may not give enough credit to is that if you're a male suffering from a culturally perceived female issue, you may even have it worse than the female suffering from that illness because of that bias. If you or someone you know is wondering if their disordered eating is actually an eating disorder, then please take a free assessment at equip.health. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Erin, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, You know, we're getting bigger and bigger companies on the show, and I just love it. And we are going to discuss a topic that we've we've brushed upon, but we haven't really deep dived. And um, it absolutely deserves a deep dive because we're going to get into statistics of prevalence. And, you know, and I've even been honest on the show previously about my own history of eating disorder. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning a lot personally and uh, putting a spotlight on something that affects so many women. Fantastic. I'm so excited to be here. And I think eating disorders is an area that is full of stereotypes and myths. So excited to dive into those with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, first, where are you calling us from today? I live in Carlsbad, California. So it's a community just north of San Diego, but I'm originally from Minnesota. So I'm still pinching myself that I am living in a place that not only doesn't snow, but doesn't have snow for eight months of the year. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's a big change. Erin, <laughs> um, we love to learn a little bit more about our guests before we dive into the topic of the interview. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, your upbringing and did you go to school? You do have a PhD. So were you always intending in going into women's health and eating disorders or what was your trajectory? Kind of bring us along your story. Yeah, so I grew up in Minnesota. I'm the oldest of three kids. I'm very close to my siblings and my parents. Um, and I developed an eating disorder when I was in uh, fifth grade, like 10 years old, um, and was fortunate to recover. Um, my parents were very active in my treatment and in many ways took over treatment. So this was in the 90s, or like maybe 1990. And we didn't have family-based treatment, the evidence-based treatment for eating disorders yet. And so my parents had taken me to a dietitian and a therapist and a psychiatrist, and they were always kicked out of the session. So they continued to take me, but they also just took matters into their own hands and um, brought me to recovery. I really didn't think about eating disorders very much after that. I was really interested in writing. I was interested in science and health. But my family was also all in the retail space in the business world. So I was also really interested in those things. Um, I went to college at Northwestern University and I was pre-med, but also studied French and communications. 
um, in international studies. I'm just someone who's interested in a lot of things. Uh, my first job after college was actually marketing Broadway shows while they toured. So very different than what I do today. I love it. Yeah. I was excited. I was in charge of vagina monologues and cabaret. Um, and it was a lot of fun, though I had like the very tertiary market. So like Missoula, Montana, Hagerstown, Maryland, Columbus, Missouri. And I didn't, I loved the place, but I didn't really like the job. And I started taking night courses just as a way to meet people and do things and really fell in love with neuropsychology and ended up getting a job in Washington, D.C. at the NIH as a research assistant in a neuroimaging lab. And I will always remember that interview because they're saying, explain to me how this Broadway job is preparing you for this job doing neuroimaging research. And I said, I don't know, but I learn really fast. And I have a feeling that theater and academia aren't that different, except for maybe no jazz hands. <laughs> and that got me the job. They took, a, they took a chance on me. I absolutely loved neuroimaging research. Um, I studied how the brain was organized and how it reorganized as a result of seizures or strokes in early childhood. And I had always known with every fiber of my being that I wanted to be a parent. And there were some studies that said that the best jobs for working parents were being an academic researcher. I'm like, okay, this is what I'll do. Um, that's what brought me out to San Diego to get my PhD. And then in you know, the late like 2000s, 2008, when the recession happened, uh, funding cycles also changed. And I didn't know if I wanted to be writing research grants and if it was gonna be that, that great of a livelihood. Um, I went and did my residency year in San Francisco, got a lot of great clinical experience, had my first child and ended up off cycle for fellowship. And so I called my grad school friends and said, do you know anyone who's hiring fellows off cycle? It can be really hard to get back on the fellowship cycle. Um, and they said, you know, the eating disorder center is. I'm like, oh, like, I don't know if I really wanna work in eating disorders. And I haven't thought about eating disorders for about 20 years. It wasn't a part of my training, wasn't a part of my life. Uh, but I am so, so fortunate that I took that fellowship um, at the UC San Diego Eating Disorder Center because it clearly changed the trajectory of my life. That's an amazing story. I love it. And I can't help but think vagina monologue somehow has actually been full circle here. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so let's get into it. What is Equip Health? Yeah, so Equip is a fully virtual treatment provider for eating disorders. And I think it helps to, as you can tell by my very long intro, I often like to start with the dinosaurs. So like, what are eating disorders? Um, mm -hmm. Eating disorders are an umbrella term. There's actually seven different diagnoses that go under that umbrella. They affect okay. kids. Yeah, they affect kids as young as five. They affect adults into their 90s. And one of the things my co-founder, Christina, and I noticed, uh, and this is true in lots of areas of mental health, that the treatment that you got so wildly varied depending upon which provider you went to and which community you lived in. Um, and a lot of people don't know what's going on behind the closed doors of a therapy room. And we wanted to make sure that more people had access to evidence-based and evidence-informed treatment for eating disorders. So we started Equip. Uh, families join us and they get a five-person fully virtual treatment team. So they get their medical provider, like a pediatrician, a psychiatrist to prescribe medication. They get a dietitian. They get a therapist, both family and individual. They get a peer mentor. That's someone who's in recovery themselves from an eating disorder. And they get a family mentor. That's someone who's helped their loved one through an eating disorder. 
And this five person treatment team will meet with you as often as you need and also has between session messaging to help bring you to full recovery. Wow, and how established is Equip? We, I like to say we're, we're, we're starting elementary school, is how I say it. So um, in the startup space, things have been moving really fast. Uh, we became, a, we incorporated in December of 2019. We spent 2020 building our clinical model and running some beta trials, which we've um, since published in peer-reviewed journals. And then in 2021, we started seeing our first patients and turned on our first payer contract. So we're now in network with 11 or 12 different insurance providers and serving people in all 50 states. Amazing. That is fast, but it also yeah. is um, telling of how important this is and how needed it is, right? So I'm excited for us to get into that. What, let's start with, you know, you were talking about uh, seven different types of eating disorders. What are the seven different types? Yes. So they're, the main ones that most people have heard of are anorexia and bulimia. So anorexia nervosa is when you end up with a caloric deficit. You're not consuming enough calories for how many calories your body needs to function and survive every day. I think a lot of people assume that these are people who are intentionally dieting or intentionally starving themselves to look like an Instagram model. But in fact, people with anorexia look lots of different ways. Um, first, not everybody with anorexia appears to be underweight. Also, about 40% of sufferers are males. I've treated Afghanistan vets who had no intention of developing anorexia, but they went to Afghanistan, they had 80 pounds on their back, they are running around in the sand, and they just were burning so many more calories than they were consuming, and they ended up in a caloric deficit. So sometimes just the act of being in a starvation state induces the eating disorder. So that's anorexia. Uh, there's bulimia or bulimia nervosa. That is when people have binge eating episodes where they eat more at once than they intend to or feel comfortable, and then they follow that with a purge. It's most often vomiting, but sometimes it's excessive exercising or sometimes it's using laxatives. I think something that's important to remember, though, is that in bulimia, people also struggle with restricting where they don't eat often for six hours, eight hours, 10 hours, and then their body is, is understandably so hungry that then they have a binge episode. Uh, the newest diagnosis on the block is ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. This is when we should make fun of psychologists for making everything acronyms that still don't make it clear what it means. Um, but I think the best way to say it is like picky eating gone awry. So these are often uh, illnesses that start in childhood or toddlerhood, and they're either extreme picky eating. So we meet kids that are 11 and only eat five foods. Um, but there's also some kids with ARFID who just have very, very low hunger cues. So they're the kids that after they take one or two bites, they're like, my tummy hurts and I don't want any more. And so these kids tend to not lose weight. However, they stop gaining weight. So at the age of 10, they weigh the same as when they were six. Uh, so those are the three eating disorders that we treat most often right now at Equip because we're serving kids ages six to 24. There's also binge eating disorder, um, which is the same uh, usually restriction and binge cycle that we see in bulimia just without the compensatory behaviors afterwards. There's the catch-all offset, and then there's um, pica or pica and rumination, which are uh, less frequent eating disorders. Wow. How prevalent are eating disorders? How many people are affected in the United States and in the world, if you have that? Yeah, so eating disorders are much more prevalent than people realize. Um, they'll affect nearly 30 million Americans in their lifetime. However, only about 20% of those struggling will ever receive treatment. If you are a cisgendered female, 
thin, white, young, between the ages of 15 and 25, you might get diagnosed and you probably would get diagnosed at least three years after your illness starts. But if you don't meet that stereotype, which is most people with eating disorders, you're less likely to get diagnosed. But it happens in um, same prevalence rates across all ethnicities, races, socioeconomic levels. And does it disproportionately affect women? Um, it, there's a disproportionate amount of people diagnosed that are women. You're just Ooh, significantly more likely to get diagnosed if you're a female yeah. or if you're cis female. Um, but we know that it affects the transgender population at a rate that's about 5x the cisgender population. Um, so trans female and trans male and non-binary individuals um, are more likely to develop eating disorders. Males, we think about 40% of people with eating disorders are cisgender males. Well, you know, it's very interesting. We've had an episode before on concussions and, you know, we started the episode about women have more concussions in sports than men. But at the end of the interview, we were like, oh, wait a minute. You mean that society just allows women to get their heads checked? Like rather than a male athlete who's told to get it back on the field, you know, unless your femur's broken in half, like you're not sick, you're a man, get back out there, right? And so it's actually a gender societal issue rather than a biological one. And so for eating disorders, my question is, um, is there an actual like sex X and Y chromosome implication here that is, you know, two X's make you more, uh, you know, a uh, you know, likely to have this, or is this a more of a society driven disease? Or let's kind of tease that apart. Where does gender and biology and this eating disorder intersect? That's an outstanding question. Um, so we do not feel like there's a, we haven't found any biological X versus Y chromosomal aspect to yeah. eating disorders. Um, however, there does seem to be a hormonal effect. It. So we oh. see the onset of yeah we see the onset of eating disorders around puberty more in both males and females so and in um, non-binary individuals as well so there's something about a hormonal change that might have an effect. We also talk about them being brain-based illnesses and this is where my neuroimaging background really gets to kind of geek out that we found that the brains of people who've had eating disorders either they have them right now today or they had them 30 years ago. There's aspects of their temperament that are wired differently in their brain. And that seems to be the difference. And it can be in a male brain or a female brain or a non-binary brain. But an example of what we see um, in our, in our you know, adjacent to our insula, in our parietal lobe, we've got the reward circuitry and the consequence circuitry. And those really run in parallel. And I like to, uh, this is an example that my mentor, Dr. Walt Kay, would give of a bunny. So just imagine that you're a bunny and you know, we're not all that different than other mammals. Um, and you are hungry. And so your reward circuitry starts firing, carrot, carrot, carrot. So you go out into the field and you're looking for carrots, you're motivated by carrots. And then all of a sudden you see a fox and your reward circuitry should get paused and your consequence circuitry should start firing and say, get away from the fox. Because if all you're thinking about is carrots, 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 you're going to get eaten. So you run back to your little bunny hole. Now, if your consequence circuitry doesn't stop firing, you're so afraid of the fox, you never leave your bunny hole and you die of starvation. So in order to survive, you need to have both the reward and the consequence circuitry being salient and firing at the right time. What we see in people whose 
who have had eating disorders, whether they currently have it or long recovered, is that consequences tend to be more salient than rewards. So for anyone who's brought their teenager to eating disorder treatment, you know, we've had people say, I'll buy you a puppy if you gain 10 pounds. I will, um, I mean, sometimes we hear extreme things like, I'll buy you a car if you gain 15 pounds. And they won't do it because those rewards aren't salient. But the imagined consequence of gaining weight, the imagined consequence of looking different feels so much greater and bigger than any reward can except circuitry loss. So that's just one example of how eating disorders are truly wired in the brain and that all of us are exposed to this very gross, fat-phobic, diet-centric culture, but only about you know, 5 to 10% of us are going to develop eating disorders. If it were just about our culture, we'd all have them. But if your brain's not wired for it, you might not get one. Wow. And so this looming box outside of the hole that people with eating disorders are so worried about, right? That they don't even go out to eat the carrot. I love this analogy. I love metaphors. This is great. Um, what are, what is the fox to, to somebody with an eating disorder? Like, what are they afraid of, you know? And um, yeah. obviously can be different, right? Because it's, you know, binging is the consequence is different than the anorexia, right? Because the binger yeah, yeah. will actually go out and ho maybe hoard all the carrots, you know, versus the anorexia person, I'm not leaving at all. So like, what, what is the concept, what is the fox to them? What are we worried about? That's an excellent question. And there's some people in the field who think that maybe these eating disorders aren't similar at all, that maybe anorexia and binge eating disorder they're only lumped together because they both happen to contain food, but maybe it's very different neurobiological mechanisms underneath them. So for people with anorexia, sometimes it is body changes. Also, sometimes also for kids with ARFID, it's body sensations. I'm going to vomit. I'm going to feel full. I'm going to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes that's the fox. Um, what we see sometimes with bulimia and binge eating disorder and also anorexia binge purge type is that Eating disorder behaviors serve a purpose. So I like to talk about how it seems as though people with eating disorders, particularly binge eating disorder, bulimia, and anorexia, binge purge type, have this tremendous capacity to feel. And the fox for them is losing control of their emotions and doing something that they're going to regret. So what we see is, and I've worked with some delightful teenagers, one in particular who explained this to me so well. She's like, listen, I was walking down the hallway at school. This girl, Sarah, walked by me and she gave me this look. I'm like, she's kind of my friend. She's like, so I spent the next, like, I don't know, five hours ruminating. Like, did I talk about Sarah to someone? Did I do something wrong? She's like, I felt guilty. I felt worried. I felt sad. She's like, but I felt 10 out of 10 guilty and 10 out of 10 sad. She's like, I know that if that exact same thing had happened to my friend Megan, she might have been like, well, Sarah's in a bad mood. Or maybe she did feel like, did I gossip about her? But she would be like two out of 10 anxious. Uh, yeah. And so we see that a lot in eating disorders, that the volume of emotions is louder and it's hard to sustain that. So if you cut yourself, you'll feel better. If you binge, you'll feel better. If you vomit, you'll feel better. If you drink alcohol, you'll feel better. So sometimes the eating disorder symptoms are just like lots of other, are not the eating disorder behaviors are like just a lot of other behaviors that you can use to help change your emotions. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I've shared on the show before I'm in recovery for bulimia and it, it's exactly that. It's a, it's a sense of if I can hurt myself, at least I'm in control of that pain versus the out, external pain I can't control. 
Um, and if I hurt myself, the uh, follow-up feeling is usually numbness and that's the gold standard. Like that's what I want, right? Um, and so for me and my story, it's, it was absolutely a disorder of wanting control because my childhood was so out of control. I've heard that um, the chances of developing an eating disorder are way higher in survivors of sexual abuse. Is that true or is that just something I've heard? It is something you've heard. No, it's, it's definitely out there. And I mean, like everything in academia, it's something that's a bit debated, like chicken and egg, right? Yeah. So does, um, do people who have eating disorders and who are wired to feel things a certain way, are they more prone to end up experiencing trauma or experiencing PTSD? Um, but we know there's definitely a relationship and we don't know exactly the direction it goes. Uh, and people over the age of 18 who have an eating disorder, 50% uh, of them also have uh, meet criteria for PTSD symptoms. Yeah, so interesting. And what is the history of eating disorders? Is this something that's been with us since like Roman times or is this like a yeah. 21st century issue? It's been around forever. Um, there is some really old writings that talked about how, well, if starving yourself for God, right? Fasting. Oh, that's right. If starving yourself. Yeah. So fasting Literally fasting. God, like, oh, fuck. Yeah, the Bible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if fasting for God for one day is good, then surely fasting for God for three days is better. And so we, we see early examples of eating disorders. Um, yeah. From the very, very beginning and the Bible is full of it. Wow. Wow. That's, that's quite remarkable. Um, what are the current, you know, treatments available uh, for myself? It was, you know, it was uh, my own mental health journey. Like as I addressed my own PTSD, the eating disorder kind of steadily improved as well. I was also a member of Overeaters Anonymous, which one might not think that's a program for people who undereat, but uh, it was a, a, a be amazing program. I cannot speak more highly of it. If you are a listener. Uh, thinking you need some support around food. OA is a beautiful, beautiful program that welcomed me with open arms. And, you know, it was an interesting paradox of people in those meetings where they, their program was the, a death sentence to me. And my program was a death sentence to them because there was women in that room who could not eat sugar. Like sugar was their heroin right and so they were on really strict diets and I was like strict diets is literally why I'm here <laughs> my program was like eat the cupcake girl eat it eat it and enjoy it and like sit with it you know and so it was like really different and interesting but so just a little shout out to that amazing program life-saving program what are the other uh treatments available yeah so the treatments have been very I mean, I'm, it sounds like this might've been true for you too. You had to go out there and put together your own puzzle of treatment. You had to kind of find stuff yourself. It's not like there's one treatment that's prescribed to everyone. Well, considering and, I fought the diagnosis for about <laughs> like eight years, like the first time someone told me uh, versus the last time somebody diagnosed me where I actually believed them and said, okay, maybe you're right. You know, like I, I used to say like, oh, I, I don't have an eating disorder. I just have disordered eating. Um, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of people, themselves, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this can relate to it. And I think we hear that a lot when someone is, if you, if you aren't a 15 to 25 year old emaciated thin white girl, you say mm -hmm. I have disordered eating. Yeah. Um, and you know, being in the startup space, I wasn't sure how the I don't know, finance bros would take to yeah. us pitching an eating yeah. disorder company. 
And what we found is we could not leave a single pitch without someone later saying to us, so yeah, um, I'm a 40-year-old finance bro and I've been vomiting three times a day and I have no idea where to go get help. Or this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my nephew. Um, It truly affects everyone. So what does treatment look like? Treatment's just been really inaccessible. This goes to your earlier point about, you know, well, it might not be gendered and who gets it, what is gendered and how... I believe that because this is an illness that we think of as a female illness, it's contributed to it being very underfunded and to it being misrepresented as an illness of fam. Uh, yep. Well, that's so, like a tagline of femtech, isn't it? If it only affects women, it's underfunded and not served, so, which is like... Exactly. And not taken seriously. And so eating disorders are underfunded in every way one can be underfunded. So philanthropically, it raises the least amount per patient of any other mental illness. But also when you look at NIH and research dollars, it's less than a dollar per patient of research dollars compared to $75 per patient for the less, for the next least funded mental health disorder. Okay, so let's say you do get funded to do eating disorder research though. The least amount of pages of um, peer-reviewed journals are dedicated to eating disorder research. It's significantly harder to get an eating disorder um, research article published than any other type of mental health um, article. And these are, these are not my own original ideas. This has all been published and documented. Um, so this is just a very misunderstood place. And so then this is what has also led to people not knowing how or where to get treatment. And you end up even in like whisper networks, like, do you know anybody? Do you know anybody? It's not like you can and Google and just find the right thing. So there are evidence-based treatments for eating disorders and they've largely been stuck in academia. A lot of people go to wonderful therapists who practice what's called eclectic treatment, which is the treatment that worked for them or the treatment that they've seen worked for a patient. And it's well-intentioned, but I think one of the problems we have in the entire mental health space, but definitely for eating disorders, is that when people don't get better, they don't blame their really nice therapist or they don't blame the modality of treatment that the therapist gave them. They blame themselves. I'm too broken. My PTSD is too severe. My eating disorder is too bad. When really, maybe they've just never been given evidence-based treatment. Wow, that is fascinating. What are the consequences of untreated eating disorders? I mean, I guess it's a consequence of an eating disorder in general, but you know, what, are, what are the consequences? Yeah, if you don't get treatment for an eating disorder, if you've been ill for at least three years, your chances of having a relapsing, remitting course of treatment or life uh, significantly increases. So the longer you're ill, the less likely you are to ever experience full recovery. Additionally, I've never met someone with just an eating disorder. Usually people also have anxiety, depression, OCD, PTSD, and after the age of 18, 50% of people with eating disorders also struggle with substance use disorder. So the longer you go untreated, the less likely you are certainly to recover from your eating disorder, but also you're less likely to recover from your other comorbidities not possible to get sober but keep your eating disorder because your eating disorder is going to trigger your substance use to come back or it's not possible to recover from your PTSD but not deal with your eating disorder because the eating disorder will trigger the PTSD to come back so um there's a there's a lot of consequences of it and it's really unfortunate that we don't hold providers to a higher standard and that we blame ourselves when we don't get better instead of looking like maybe that treatment didn't work and I like to compare it to the medical field like if you went to a dermatologist for a rash and your rash didn't get better, you'd think maybe it's the cream and they need to prescribe me a different cream for it. Or maybe it's the dermatologist and I need a second opinion. 
But we don't do that in the mental health field. When we don't get better, we go back to the same treatment center again and again, the same person again and again. And maybe they're just really nice, but not providing evidence-based treatment. Well, I mean, it's, you know, and I'm speaking for myself here that eating disorder was very much a self-punishment disorder. And so to think about who's who's deserving of the punishment if it doesn't work. I mean, this whole thing is based on me not liking myself or me upset with my body for reminding me of stuff or my body, you know, um, having feelings and me wanting to numb that. And so uh, that's not surprising that the the consequence would be oh, my fault, you know? Interesting, interesting. And when you think of an illness that people perceive as only affecting females, well, then of course it's the female's fault when they don't get better right? There, there's yeah, we're definitely dive like kind of debunking some of this gender stuff. I had no idea even personally how many men are affected by this. And so this is really fascinating. Um, how has the pandemic affected eating disorders? You know, you started this in December, 2019. You probably had no idea what you were in store for. None of us did. Um, <laughs> and it sounds like you really got so much traction during the pandemic and maybe that would have happened regardless, but how has the pandemic affected eating disorders? The pandemic has uh, been awful for so many people in so many ways, but we've definitely seen about a 70% increase in eating disorders, which is unheard of. Um, we're seeing, let me just reiterate that yeah. 70% is that's like, that's statistically <laughs> significant. I haven't seen the data, but it sounds significant. <laughs> well, and I would have never predicted that, um, you know, eating disorders is something that has been pretty steady for know, thousands of years, right? So or hundreds of years, the rates of people with eating disorders. Um, and people are like, oh, like surely it's gotten worse because of you know magazines that are airbrushed. And they're like, yeah, it's always been kind of bad. And if it were just about wanting to look different, then maybe magazines would have changed it. But no. Um, but I think the pandemic created a perfect storm. So one, it created a lot of emotions and not a lot of way to handle the emotions. So being with peers, socializing getting to go to soccer practice. There's lots of things that we do that give us a life worth living and that help to contribute to our emotion regulation. And a lot of those things were taken away. So there were a lot of people who tried to regulate their emotions by restricting, by binging, by vomiting, because as you said, vomiting numbs you out quick. It is a very effective way to regulate your emotions. Not a long-term effective way, but certainly a short-term effective way. So I think that's one of the reasons we saw an increase in eating disorders. I think the second reason um, is the increased rate or the increased amount of social media that people were consuming during this time. So it is simplistic to say that social media causes eating disorders. We, we don't have data to suggest that. But we do know that social media can be very triggering. And people have asked me like, okay, Erin, in the 90s, I remember reading, you know, Seventeen magazine and, and people were airbrushed and I wanted to look like them like that was bad for us isn't social media the same and yes it is something but it is the quantity the time it took us to flip through a magazine when you probably see about a hundred x a thousand x number of images when scrolling through your feed so your brain is just getting bombarded with more and more unrealistic images and we all spent more time on our phones and, and on screens during the pandemic um, and then lastly, I think another thing that happened is families were with their children more and got to see behaviors that before were probably hidden. They were hidden because they were at school. They were hidden because they were at soccer practice. 
And so I think parents got to see the full spectrum of how their parents, how their children were interacting with food, interacting with exercise, and interacting with their emotions. Do you notice, and I have a few additional questions, but like, do you um, notice that typically families are supportive? I mean, that's part of your treatment is like one of the, the pegs in your wheel is the family. Uh, you know, personally, I, you know, my mom, one of the last times I was diagnosed officially, my mom was in the room and she said, no, I've watched her eat. She, she eats fine. That's not what it is. You know, like very blatant denial, which is classic my mom. Um, and so, you know, do you find that it's an often issue where families are not supportive or won't acknowledge, or do you, is that, am I like a, I don't know, <laughs> I guess I'm asking no, in general. You're, you're, yeah, um, you're not an anomaly. And I would say that any type of family you can imagine is a type of family that we've treated. Oh. It really, it doesn't seem as though family factors into whether or not you get an eating disorder with the exception of there does seem to be passing of these genetic temperament traits from parent to offspring. So maybe one of the parents has trouble regulating their emotions and so does their kids. Or maybe one of the parents is very perfectionistic and so is their children. Um, but we see all types of families. And when we go to treat people from this family perspective, and we do this whether you're 10, and we also recommend it if you're 30 or 40. And it's about the fact that you can't recover on your own. So eating disorders are what we call egocentric, just like a fancy psych word, which means that if you're anxious, you want to stop being anxious. If you're depressed, you want to stop being depressed. But there's something about an eating disorder that people aren't entirely sure if they want to get rid of their eating disorder. Oh, yeah. There's a part of it that they don't like, but there's a part of it that provides them with a way to regulate their emotions, a way to provide them comfort, um, a way to regulate their weight. And so a lot of ambivalence comes with eating disorders. Additionally, in order to recover from an eating disorder, you typically have to eat about a minimum three, but usually six times a day. So whether you have bulimia or binge eating disorder or anorexia, the medicine really is frequently eating. Don't let yourself get so hungry that you have a binge, but also don't, um, don't restrict. Make sure you're getting all the calories that your body needs. You have anorexia or ARFID. Now, your brain doesn't want you to eat. You're, you know, some people who don't have hunger cues, you're not even hungry my co-founder often says like, it's almost cruel to ask someone to do that by themselves. Yeah. And so you need your family, but truly family is whatever family means to you. So while we definitely have families that equip that are like a biological mom and a biological dad helping their biological child to get better, we have lots of parents and step parents and aunts and grandparents and a theater teacher and a neighbor, whoever is going to be the people that are going to help structure your home environment for pro-health behavior. So I'll, I'll do one more. Go ahead. Yeah, one more kind of analogy is like if you thought that if you were struggling with substance use, you would expect your significant other, your roommate, your parents to maybe get rid of the alcohol in the house to make it difficult for you to act on your urge. We're asking the same thing of families with eating disorder treatment. So let's say your child has a hard time. Um, they have the urge to purge. They have an urge to vomit after a meal. So then we say, okay, family, um, let's just acknowledge that this is something that's difficult for Brittany. She's going to want to vomit after this meal. So we're going to make it a family rule that after dinner, you can have unlimited screen time, but you need to be where I can see you. No taking a shower after dinner, no being alone in your room after dinner. Um, 
maybe we do a family walk, maybe you go hang out with your friend, maybe you get to play video games during dinner even, anything to make it easier. And so you ask the family to structure the home for pro-health behavior. I love that. And because um, it's absolutely a, a unit, a family unit thing, you know, I'm, I'm dating an amazing partner um, who, you know, I gained some weight during the pandemic. For me, the biggest thing was being stationary. I was just stuck indoors. I just literally, my step count was 10. Like, <laughs> like I literally, I didn't go anywhere and I gained some weight and I've, you know, been trying to lose it in a way that is healthy and slow and not crazy. And, you know, like, um, and I have this amazing partner who would sometimes hear me feeling discouraged and he'd say, well, babe, just eat less, you know, skip a meal. And, and I'd be like, you cannot say that to me. That is literally the, I know that you're just like thinking off the cuff, like, a, like, oh, just like cut your calories. Like to me, that's like you telling me to just cut, cut off your breast. Like, I don't know. It's yeah. crazy. No. And so, um, you know, I gave him a blog with like top 10 things not to say to someone in, with the eating disorder. And he was like, oops, I've been saying eight of the 10. Like, do you, is there anyone listening to the show where can they go to equip health? Like, and is your, is there blogs, is there resources there? Like where, what can yes. somebody listening who wants to support someone do? Yes. So, um, yeah, our website is www.equip.health and there's plenty of like articles and, and what to say and what not to say. But then also let's say, you know, your loved one is at Equip and your loved one is 42 years old. We encourage you to come as well and also give you groups and resources to be with other significant others, people going through treatment. Because it can be very hard for us to, when you're, when you're trying to get better, to also have to advocate for yourself can be just a whole nother layer of work to do. And so instead of you having to tell your significant other, please don't say that, say this instead, let's just give them a group with a whole bunch of other significant others who can talk about um, how to best support someone. Uh, by the way, update y'all. He's doing amazing and not saying any of those 10 things anymore. He just needed a, he just needed like some direction, right? He's like yeah. really awesome. So we're doing great. But and it uh, makes sense that he was saying that though, because our, I mean, our whole culture is saying things like that, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So he, he was just, he was being normal, but hopefully we can change what normal is. And, and also maybe we can not lose the weight after the pandemic. Maybe that's the weight our body wants to be. Yes. Yes. Um, this has literally been so fascinating. I want to talk to you forever and ever. Um, but alas, we are an episode-based podcast, <laughs> not a, <laughs> and so we have to wrap it up. Um, but we have two last questions that our listeners really love. The first one is we have a lot of um, students and aspiring entrepreneurs that listen. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Oh my, all of it. Okay. Um... What is an area of women's health? Well, I, eating disorders still need innovating. I know that's kind of a, that a cheap answer to say my own oh, area. Oh, no, absolutely. It's your passion. Tell me, is there other tech companies like Equip or are we, are y'all like the one, one <laughs> company out there? We're kind of it. It was interesting while we were, um, while we were fundraising, people are like, I think I've heard, you know, a hundred substance use startups and, you know, in the past two months. And this is my only eating disorder one I've ever heard. Uh, so just getting people to think more broadly about what eating disorders are, who they affect, um, and I would love for people to help just work on this concept of treatment that feels good isn't the same as treatment that works, and helping us to be more discerning around mental health treatment in general, um, and making sure that we don't think of illnesses as 
just female illnesses. I have to admit, I kind of even hate myself for saying it like, oh, in order to get more people to care, let's think about it as a men's illness too. I would like us to also just care about women. Um, anyway, but I also really hear you. I hear you. That's what we do in Femtech. Like a uh, uterine fibroid grant was funded by the US government because we told them female soldiers with uterine fibroids wouldn't be able to fight. And like, that was the only reason we could get that grant approved. You know, was because women in the front lines need to be able to hold their guns up without cramps, you know, and like, I hate that. Why can't we just say women in everyday life are having cramps? And it's like, no, we have to make some kind of weird argument to suffice other things that we prioritize. Yeah. And I'd love uh, people to also think about, you know, there is a difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating. And Mm. most people in our culture hate their body, whether they're female, male or non-binary. That's not great either. It doesn't need to be an eating disorder for us to want to change it. And so for people to be more critical of, I'm doing air quotes for those listening, the wellness culture that's going on right now, um, it is really targeting women, targeting women's dollars. Um, Women are spending so much money on wellness culture. uh, And what are the ways in which it's actually really bad for, for women? I have, you know, working in the femtech space, I, I do see companies, we've had some on the show and, I'm, and, I, and I love most of them, but there is a, also like a line where I'm like, okay, th- is this just a dieting app? You know, like, is this another way to get, you know, I don't, I can't fathom the percentage of your consumers that actually need medical care versus a subscription to your weekly blog, you know, like, I don't, I think they may need to read less about how long to fast, uh, to lose weight and more about how do you breathe and center yourself before a meal. So you're not in fight or flight, right? Like just thinking about things differently. So, um, our last question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Yes, I think it's so speaking mainly to females with the, what I want to answer here, and it's a little bit to spend less time in school and go do the work. I've met so many females who feel like they need to get all of the degrees, and obviously I'm like speaking to the choir here with Brittany and I. I go right here with PhD by 24. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what kind of disordered living was I having? Yeah, we can also put a pin in that, but... Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's one of the things that blew me away about my co-founder. Um, so she is 29. She'll turn 30 this year. And, and she also, a couple of years ago, felt like, well, in order to make a difference in eating disorders, I have to first get my MD or first get my PhD. And her and I talked a lot about that. There's a lot of way to make, ways to make change in the world, which isn't becoming an expert first. You can be an expert without all the degrees after your name. Like, go and get into the field. And I think there's so many smart women who are spending... 15 plus years getting an education when like, no, go, go do that startup right now. Go insert yourself into um, these other fields and ask for these leadership positions. You, you don't need to, we don't need to spend all this time getting these degrees. I know that we just spent you and I a lot of time getting them. So I'm coming from a place of privilege in saying that, um, but, but don't feel like you need to get these letters after your name in order to make a difference. Well, you know, I think that's a really relevant comment when um, we're thinking about 
femtech and how many people are currently looking for roles in women's health and how many people are hiring in women's health. We just had a very successful jobs fair with over 500 candidates, like really, really um, exciting time. But a lot of people have been asking me, I don't have a degree in women's health. And I'm like, I'm not sure how you could, unless you're an OB-GYN, like, and even they don't know about the innovation in women's health. They just know where the fallopian tubes are, right? Like, um, so, and not to dismiss what OB-GYNs know, we all know we're, we're a big fan of them, but, you know, um, there, there is actually no degree in femtech. And in fact, if you want to be known in femtech, just start something. Yeah. I have like an honorary PhD in femtech because of how many interviews I've done. And, but it's just because I was the first femtech podcast to get started. And so like, if you listeners want to do something, want to be known in women's health, start a meetup group, you know, uh, for a book club or a movie night series for women's health or start a local chapter. We're starting to, you know, get back into the real world to like build whatever city you're in, make a meetup where once a week you guys get together, you bring in a speaker, like you, it so quickly can become the number one. Like I'm actually personally appalled that I'm like a, a global thought leader, like a top 10 thought leader in women's health after only two years of working in the space, because I'm like, whoa, wait, wait. I just spent how many years in genetics and nobody, like, I'm not known in the genetics field whatsoever. And now about women's health, I've been, you know, talk to a hundred people, put it on Spotify. You're the world's expert. Um, it's, it's prime for, for new leaders. So, you know, it's an encouraging comment, you know, start something in women's health. Cause we need it all. We need all of, we need content. it all. Yeah. yeah. And don't just hang out in academia, nonprofit, like go grab some of this money. Um, yeah. we need to make sure that we're doing stuff in for profit too. Erin, you are incredible. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Brittany. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Aaron Parks, the co-founder and chief operating officer of Equip Health. If you or someone you know is wondering if they may have an eating disorder, then please take the free assessment at equip.health. Alrighty, Fem fans, be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other Femtech founders, investors, and mentors advising and advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up for a FemPro membership, only $15 a month, and get access to assets like our Femtech company database and a self-guided Femtech accelerator. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech book club, which happens last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.